it's tremendously hard work to continue to tell that lie that you or I or Melody are fundamentally inferior. One thing I always have to repeat and teach is that I like being Black. I do not feel bad about it. I don't wake up sad. I'm not struggling. I am not a tragedy. Um, I, I am joyful about who I am and my existence and the communities in which I live. I am joyful about the people I get to write about. Um, this joy does not um, discount the sorrows that we suffer, right? So joy is not about happiness. They're not the same word, but the sense that I come from something that is bigger than where I am, um, that imbibes me with something that keeps me going. Welcome to Southern Futures, a podcast for distinctive storytelling and humble listening. I'm your host, Melody Hunter-Pillion. So you just heard the voices of our two guests for this episode. They're both professors of history and parents of school-aged children. Dr. Melinda Maynard Lowry, director of the Center for the Study of the American South at UNC, and Dr. Blair Kelly, assistant dean of interdisciplinary studies and international programs at North Carolina State University. Blair and Melinda, thank you both for being here. Part of what I love about being a student again is interacting with young people. With my classmates and also with my nieces, we do have debates about protest and people blocking the highways. So I'm operating, I'm thinking, from this PR-minded framework of how to get folks to agree uh, with my goals. And I'm thinking of the civil rights movement, but my young classmates say, uh-uh, and it's not really about that. It's more about you know getting people's attention well, so let's discuss this generational gap. Um, so I think it's a, there's two layers to this. Um, I think you're forgetting the disturbance that civil rights in the classical sense caused, right? So if black students go sit at the counter at the white restaurant, they disturb the hell out of that restaurant, that whole Woolworths, that Cresses, whatever. They weren't doing... Yeah, that wasn't passive. They ruined that day for that whole group of people who were just going to try to get their little sandwich or you know buy something in the five and dime part of the store. And so that's still a disturbance, right? They they are causing a problem. Now it seems ridiculous because why in the world would you know some black students sitting at a counter mean the whole store needs to shut down and um, that waitresses start spontaneously dropping everything because they're so freaked out? That's illogical, and yet it is a disturbance. Right. So the, 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 the movement caused disturbances. They caused an upending of everyday life in order to show um, the power, in order to show that segregation was not a placid system, that it was um, governed by violence. Um, and the knowledge of violence is what kept black people in their quote unquote places. And so by bringing that violence to the surface, they showed the world what was really happening in those circumstances. And so as much as I, you know, I'd love to drive where I want to go and get there on time, um, it is powerful to see young people um, braving standing on a highway um, to disturb the, the status quo today. Because where can we disturb it? You know, there's no place in which the problems that they are confronting is necessarily co-located, right? So the, the lunch counter was a segregated space that one could attack. 
Where does one attack the consciousness of a, a country that allows people um, to see a black man as um, not human? Where is that? Where, where, could, where could you go to protest it? And so I think by pouring onto the highways, um, the, I saw last night on the news um, in, I believe it was in Oregon? Yeah, I think it was in Portland, Oregon. They almost filled this massive um, suspension bridge that went over um, a river. Um, and I was saying to my um, daughter, I was like, these, these aren't black people, babe, because there aren't that many black people in Portland. I'm sure that first section, is that would be all the black people. And my son, who is um, seven, was like, well, let me count them. And so they're, you know, drones shotting the, the bridge and he starts counting. There's one mama. There's another one. Oh, look, brown arms. And so they're all laying there, um, you know, for the, the, to symbolize the, the time in which George Floyd was uh, under the, the, the knees of the police. And my son is counting um, the black participants. We, I think we got to about 15 and there were thousands. Um, and so there is something really visually compelling and stirring about people who are willing to, to move away from their everyday lives, um, to put their lives down, um, to make a point, to make a collective point. And that the massiveness of that is still powerful and it's still meaningful. So um, yeah, it looks different, but it, it's got to. How could it possibly look the same? You have a group of young people that have identified the locus of protest differently than my parents who were protesting, and grandparents, who were protesting school segregation. What our young people have, have understood and pointed out to an older generation is capitalist systems that value goods and services above human life are what need to be dismantled. And so it's not widely, I don't see it, as widely divorced from the strategies that were used in the 1960s. And I think what we have 1950s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, what, we, what we also have is a kind of misremembering or a flattening out of, of these narratives of why those protest strategies worked. When we see, yet again, another African-American killed by police, followed by protest, yet again, we can't help but ask, why can't our society just break out of this cycle? I know this may sound oversimplified for a question, but why are so many issues in American society about race? Race is a construct that depends on a power hierarchy. And when someone asks me in an, in an ordinary conversation where maybe I'm bringing up some aspect of my identity as a member of the Lumbee tribe, you know, well, why is this about race? And I need to sort of say to them, I'm, I'm struggling, honestly, sometimes to find a, a, a simple way of explaining to them that this is about race because European settlers came to this country and created a hierarchy that made it about race. 
that divided that or that that restricted access to equality based on race and restricted access to our democratic methods of government based on race. So I'm not making it about race. I'm talking about race because that is one of the fundamental organizing principles that European colonialism brought to this land. Why does there seem to be a push against even having the conversation about that? Why are people so uncomfortable with it? Well, we're taught implicitly that blackness is stigma, right? So if black people are really at the the base of any understanding or misunderstanding of of identity in this country, um, black people are stigmatized people. Not because there's something wrong with us, not because there um, is any failing or lack or some fundamental essential truth about us that comes short, but rather that we are um, the people who were brought here to labor. And in order to make that system work, a stigma had to be placed on that population to isolate them, to disempower them. Um, And that was a constant work because African peoples who were brought here were constantly resistant. And so that back and forth, that, that work of um, making blackness into something that it was not is, is, is ever going. And it's still happening now, right? Um, and so in part, we are taught to think of race as um, some set of neutral descriptors rather than you know just your color or your hair texture or your eye color or something like that. But implicit in that thinking is this stigma uh, so much so that the, the logic of um, the one drop rule is a, is a great example of this. So this notion uh, that was built over time, right? Not, not the first notion of, of who was black, who was white, who was native, um, but rather um, uh, building up a little, a smaller and smaller space for anyone in between. Um, so by the time we get to the 20th, turn of the 20th century, there is this notion that a single African ancestor anywhere in your line made you black so that you could be 99% of European descent and still be black. Uh, That Homer Plessy, a man who had blue eyes and fair straight hair could be arrested uh, after delineating himself as the person sent there, the person of color sent there, and that he would undergird um, segregation for several generations is this illogic of race. So that, so that to be black is this terrible thing. It is that fly in the buttermilk. It is that impossibility of escape. And that no, that, that it doesn't work in reverse. That to be um, slightly white does not make you white. That if I said I was white to anybody, they would um, find that hilarious. Um, but if, if, a person who is fair-skinned and has straight hair and blue eyes says they're black, we can work on that logic because, of course, something has happened here. Um, I enjoy, um, when I teach about this history of race with my students, making them work through the logic of race because there is none. Um, and they think there is one when they start. And by the time the exercise is done, they realize that there isn't one. Um, and that we're all dealing in, in stereotype and misunderstanding and this long history uh, that has us bound in profound misunderstanding. So, of course, everything we're doing is about 
this history of race. And of course, the, the, um, the black men who move about this country are stigmatized um, implicitly at every turn. The black women who move about this country, the, the trans men and trans women who are black are stigmatized. Uh, gay folk who are black are stigmatized. Straight folk who are black are stigmatized in every portion of this country, um, at every turn. And so this movement is really about trying to shove that consciousness to the surface of our country. And it's phenomenal what you, what you said, Blair, about the lie that has to be perpetuated in order for this system to exist. I feel like that's, a, that's another thread to pull out of this obstacle that people have in seeing, um, seeing racial inequality and the, the fundamental illogic of it and basis of it is that, as our friend Tim Tyson says, maintaining white supremacy is hard work. It's tremendously hard work to continue to tell that lie that you or I or Melody are fundamentally inferior, biologically inferior. So when you have to maintain that lie, and yet people have bought into it as a core belief, maybe not always the inferiority part, but just the difference, the stigma part, the difference embodied in us if we're not classified as European or of European descent, then um, you you get defensive about about upholding what maybe you didn't know was a lie. And even perhaps after you know it was a lie, you realize you have to defend that stance simply because you don't know another explanation, you know? Or you can't marshal another kind of counter argument to it. So I think the the very nature of the lie that's had to be told keeps people in a in a stance of having to defend the lie. And so when when we get this knee jerk reaction of why does everything have to be about race with you, people I know I think are are primarily working to defend something that they're learning is a lie, but they've always been told is the truth. Mm-hmm. And I think the other flip side of this for me is something you alluded to earlier, Melinda, is the community that has arisen in spite of the, the object of categorization and hierarchy, right? So one thing I always have to repeat and teach is that I like being Black. I do not feel bad about it. I don't wake up sad. I'm not struggling. I am not a tragedy. Um, I, I am joyful about who I am and my existence and the communities in which I live. I am joyful about the people I get to write about. Um, this joy does not um, discount the sorrows that we suffer, right? So joy is not about happiness. They're not the same word, but the sense that I come from something that is bigger than where I am. Um, that imbibes me with something that keeps me going. And so um, that, I think, is always important to, to recall at those moments, too.
Between the COVID-19 crisis and unrest in our streets, it's made for an anxious start to the summer season. And I want to know when you seek solace or understanding through reading, what's resonating with you? It could be something very recent that you've read. It could be something uh, that's a standard that you go back to uh, year after year. Just share uh, a passage with me and tell us why you picked that particular uh, piece of literature. So I picked um, Beloved. Um, Toni Morrison is um, and was really just sort of a touchstone for me thinking about being a historian. Um, I read um, Beloved as a 16-year-old when my grandmother was dying and, and died. Um, and so it, it, the, the sense of, of place and ancestry really um, spoke to me in a profound way and sort of set me on my journey. And I'm still, I'm working on a book called Black Folk and really thinking about the culture of a Black working class and its, its power over time. And I was going back to sort of um, where my ancestors are, are from, some of my ancestors are from, in Elbert County, Georgia, and thinking about recreating their, their faith experiences. Um, and um, I thought of Baby Suggs Holy um, when I was doing that work, so I want to share that. It, it always resonates in, in every direction for me, and particularly in this moment um, when we are experiencing the fragility of our bodies and, and mourning um, the ways the world does not love us. Here, she said, in this place, we flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet and grass, love it, love it hard. Yonder they do not love your flesh, they despise it. They don't love your eyes, they just as soon pick them out. No more do they love the skin on your back, yonder they flay it. Oh, my people, they do not love your hands. Those they only use, tie, bind, chop off and leave empty. Love your hands, love them. Raise them up and kiss them, touch others with them, pat them together, stroke them on your face because they don't love that either. You got to love it, you. And no, they ain't in love with your mouth. Yonder out there, they will see it broken and break it again. What you say out of it, they will not heed. What you scream from it, they do not hear. What you put in it to nourish your body, they will snatch away and give you leavings instead. No, they do not love your mouth. You got to love it. This is flesh I'm talking about here, flesh that needs to be loved, feet that need rest and to dance, backs that need support, shoulders that need arms, strong arms, I'm telling you. Oh, my people out yonder, hear me. They do not love your neck, unnoosed and straight. So love your neck. Put a hand on it, grace it, stroke it, hold it up. And all your inside parts that they just as soon Slop for hogs, you've got to love them. The dark, dark liver, love it, love it. And the beat and beating heart, love that too. More than the eyes or feet, more than the lungs that have yet to draw free air. More than your life-holding womb and your life-giving private parts. Hear me now, love your heart, for this is the prize. This is why I love Toni Morrison, um, Blair. Beautiful writing. And I think um, what you picked was um, perfect to go with the times that we, we are in. So thank you for that. Melinda, talk to me about what you've picked uh, or selected for your reading. Oh, no. And 
and why. Amen and amen to Tanya mm-hmm. Morrison. Mm-hmm. I picked um, a passage from Benito Serino, a no- novella written by Herman Melville. It's published in 1855. Um, and of course, Melville was best known for Moby Dick and just general fictional commentaries on American life and the particularly tortured aspects of um, race and class that before the Civil War were um, were coming to fruition. And this particular story takes place in 1799. It's about a rebellion on a slave ship. And it opens in Massachusetts, on the coast of Massachusetts. And it's one morning in 1779. The morning was one peculiar to that coast. Everything was mute and calm, everything gray. The sea, though undulated into long roods of swells, seemed fixed and was sleeked at the surface like waved lead that is cooled and set in the smelter's mold. The sky seemed a gray suture. Flights of troubled gray fowl kith and kin with flights of troubled gray vapors, among which they were mixed, skimmed low and fitfully over the waters as swallows over meadows before storms, shadows present, foreshadowing deeper shadows to come. And um, that passage, his description of the gray fowl, kith and kin with the gray vapors, the ways in which um, the swells of the sea are compared to waved lead that has cooled and set. The contrasts all speak to the contrast that we see in our society, the contrast that we see visually in photographs, for example, the light and the dark paired together. Never separate, like never independently examined. He's telling us that just as in the South, everywhere in the country, we must look at light and dark together and that there are shadows that foreshadow deeper shadows if we don't reckon with them, if we don't look at them and see them as part of us, just as we would like to see the light as part of us. Any final thoughts? So I I really do think these times are um, extraordinary for the coupling of so many um, sorrowful things and difficult things and frightening things and hopeful things. I think this is a time that we will end up remembering in our history. I think this may be a turning point. Um, and so I hope that it is a turning point that uh, creates a greater reckoning of our all our collective humanity. If we act like history doesn't inform our actions, then for one thing, we're just we're overworking ourselves. We're, we're maintaining the lie at great expense to our time and energy and, and souls. Um, but we're also not actively working to build a more constructive future. And we need to use every present moment to do that. So if we're denying history or not talking about the role of history in our own lives and in our, in our communities and in our larger nation, then we're really 
um, removing a critical piece of the toolkit to build a future, the future we want to have. Melinda and Blair, I want to thank you both for sharing your insights as historians, but also as parents. And a bonus episode of our conversation with Dr. Blair Kelly and Dr. Melinda Maynard-Lowry, they confront the topic of discussing racism with children, a struggle for all parents, including these historians. They also tell us how they reimagine the South and its future. For executive producer, Melinda Maynard-Lowry, associate producer, Ellie Little, and sound editor, Mark Meyer, I'm Melody Hunter-Pillion. Southern Futures is a podcast powered by the Southern Futures Initiative, a new collaboration between the College of Arts and Sciences, UNC Libraries, the Center for the Study of the American South, and other units of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Southern Futures, reimagine the American South.